Support for this program comes from your generous donations. To find out more, visit us online at www.chipbrogdon.com. Session one for this relationship clinic, here's what uh, we're going to cover. Uh, number one, we're going to talk about the spiritual significance of relationships. The spiritual significance of relationships. Um, in my mind, if I can't make a spiritual connection to something, it's not important. But if I can make a spiritual connection to something, if I see the spiritual significance of something, then all of a sudden it's incredibly important to me. And so we're going to establish right away uh, the spiritual significance of relationships so you'll understand why they are important. Number two, we'll talk about five reasons why relationships why relationships are difficult. Five reasons why relationships are so difficult. If they were easy, we wouldn't be here talking about them and people would not be interested in them. But because relationships are difficult, they are complex, let's look at that, why that is so that we can be prepared to deal with the challenges that come up and we'll will not be surprised or frustrated by those challenges in our relationships, but we can deal with them. Number three, we'll talk about four biblical spheres of relationship. You'll be surprised to consider all the different relationships that you have, and there's different rules governing each of those relationships. But once you take all those relationships and you kind of classify them into four areas according to how Scripture classifies them, it makes it a lot easier to manage and deal with. So we'll help you do that. And... We'll talk about four basic principles for excellent relationships. And finally, we will end with some practical steps. I'm going to give you some next steps to improve your relationships. By the time you leave here tonight, you're not going to have just a lot of theory, but I'm going to take these principles and I'm going to give you a little bit of homework so that you can begin to apply them to your most important relationships right now and begin to see measurable improvement as soon as you put these things into practice. So let's jump right into it. Relationship Clinic, Session 1. Let's begin by talking about the spiritual significance of relationships. And I'd like to begin, if you've brought your Bible, in the book of Mark. So Mark chapter 12. And we'll begin reading the words of Jesus in verse 28. Actually, this is a question from one of the scribes to Jesus. It says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked Jesus, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the spiritual significance of relationships rests upon the fact that Jesus says there are really only two commandments in terms of importance and priority. You know, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Jewish Torah, the mitzvot contains 613 commandments. And Jesus here sums everything up and says, um, really, there's only two that are most important. There are no other commandments greater or more important than these two commandments. And what are they? Number one, love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And he says the second commandment is similar to it. And it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, isn't it interesting that the two greatest commandments that God could give us, that Jesus says these are greater, these are the greatest, and there's nothing else greater than these two, isn't it interesting but that both of them have to do with relationships? Specifically, it has to do with loving God and loving your neighbor. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says you can have faith that, move mount, that moves mountains. You can prophesy and you can have revelation into all kinds of spiritual mysteries. And you can declare all of these wise things by the Spirit. You can even give your body to be burned, he says, but without love it profits you nothing. And so here is Jesus confirming that the two greatest commandments out of 613 mitzvot have to do with loving God and loving your neighbor. Love being the central characteristic. But isn't it interesting that this whole framework of spiritual greatness has to do with the context of relationships. Loving God refers to your relationship with God, and that's why we emphasize at the School of Christ the importance of a relationship with Jesus, not a religion about Jesus. That's because the greatest of all these commandments is love God. That's a, an invitation to a love relationship with the Father. And so it's interesting that when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, it says that we beheld his glory. We, we saw something in the Lord that we would not have perceived had he not taken on flesh and blood. And what we perceived and what we saw when we beheld his glory is we saw a relationship between a father and a son. We saw a relationship, not a religion, between a worshiper of God and God himself, but we saw a relationship, did we not, between father and son. And Jesus, was. they would accuse him of blasphemy of blasphemy because he called God his Father. So Jesus says this is the greatest commandment. Love God. And that commandment, that invitation, is to enter into a kind of relationship with the Lord that was not available 
or at least was not perceivable and not available to most of the people in the Old Testament. We do see some examples of those who had an intimate relationship with God. Uh, For example, David had a very intimate, close love relationship with God, but no one until the Lord Jesus really exemplified what it meant to be in a love relationship with the Father. So do you see how Jesus exemplifies this idea of a relationship with the Father? Well then secondly, right along with loving God, there is the commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, isn't it, again, interesting that it's not enough to simply love God? That's important. But the second commandment, Jesus says, is love your neighbor as you love yourself. So my question, and maybe you've wondered about this as well, or or maybe I'm the only one that's wondered about it, But my question is, if I love God, why do my neighbors matter? Why why does it matter if I love other people so long as I'm loving God? What's the connection there? Well, I think we find the connection in 1 John. So um, turn over to 1 John towards the back of the New Testament there. 1 John chapter 4. And so here's the, the... test of love and the test of relationship. Why do neighbors matter? Why is it important that we love our neighbor and that we even consider or give thought to the spirit, any spiritual significance to the relationships that we have with one another? And by neighbor, love your neighbor, Scripture is not just talking about the people who live next door to you or the people who live across the street from you. It's talking about the people that you interact with and that you come into contact with on a regular basis. The people that are outside of your immediate uh, family and relationship. But your neighbor is basically other people. But why do these other people matter as long as we're loving God? Why isn't that enough? Why do I have to love my neighbor also? Well, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, gives us the answer. It says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So this is the answer to the spiritual significance of relationships. It's not enough to love God. It's easy to say, I love God, because God is invisible to us. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So it's easy to say, I love God. It's not so easy to say, I love my brother, I love my neighbor. Why? Because we can see our brothers and sisters. We can see our neighbors And it's very easy for us in these complex relationships that we have with one another. We can get on one another's nerves. We can clash. We can argue. 
And if the relationship is poor, we could get to the place where we say, I hate you. I hate those people. I hate these people. And they hate me also. <laughs> so if someone says, I love God, Scripture says you're going to love your brother also. And if you say you love God, if you say I'm keeping the first commandment, but you hate your brother, then you are a liar, Scripture says. You don't really love God at all. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So 1 John 4.21 says, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. He who loves God, that's the first commandment, must love his brother also. That's the second. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So that's why your neighbor matters. That's why your brother matters or your sister matters. That's the spiritual significance of relationships. So we can judge the quality of our relationship with God by the quality of the relationships that we have with other people. And unfortunately, many of us don't measure up. We like to believe that we have this wonderful relationship with God, but if you look at it as Scripture does, and Scripture measures the honesty and the depth of your knowledge and spirituality with God by the quality of the relationships that you have with one another. In other words, by the love that you show, the love that you demonstrate towards one another. If we could just base it on our invisible love for God, we would be in good shape. But when it comes to something that is measurable in terms of how we treat one another, then many of us come up short. And so that's the reason for this study on relationships, because relationships have spiritual significance. So why is it that relationships seem to be so difficult? Right now, if you think about it, you have difficult relationships with people in your life. Difficult circumstances, difficult problems with problem people, problems in your relationships. Why are relationships so difficult? Well, I'm going to give you several reasons here. First of all, because there are 7 billion plus people in the world today, if you look at a graph of the population of the world from prehistoric times to the present age, you'll see that the world population was very flat in a graph of population growth. It only reached a billion people sometime, I think, in the 17, late 1700s or early 1800s. But the point is, it has doubled, the population of the world has doubled something like every 50 years or every 30 years. And most of the growth, if you chart this on a map, you'll see it spikes up significantly 
in the last 200 years. This is what you would call a population explosion compared to all of the years gone by in the history of man. So here we are now with 7 billion people in the world today. Why is that a problem? Well, because each person has their own agenda for their own happiness. Each person is pursuing their idea of happiness. And unfortunately, many people's idea of what will make them happy comes at the price of making other people unhappy. It's called a zero-sum game. It means that for me to have what I want, it means I have to take it from somebody else. And that's a philosophy that many of these 7 billion people hold today. That um, winners and losers, if you want to be a winner, it means somebody has to lose. And that's a very distorted view of the world, but each person has their own idea their own agenda for their own happiness, and often that agenda conflicts with everybody else's agenda. And human nature is inherently self-centered. So we've talked a lot in previous teachings about being self-centered versus Christ-centered. To be self-centered means that you are primarily concerned with yourself, your needs, your wants, what will make you happy, what will make you feel good. And this is human nature in its very basic form. It's only when we encounter the love and the grace and the mercy of God, and it's only when we take up the cross and begin to follow after Jesus, that we begin to transition out of a self-centered existence and into a Christ-centered existence. And that's the whole goal of discipleship. The goal of discipleship is to get you out of a self-centered existence and to train you up in a new way of living. And it's a way in, in which you are a Christ-centered person instead of a self-centered person. And that's a process. Being born again, entering the gate, that happens in just a blink of an eye, in just a moment of time, as soon as you come to the Lord, as soon as you open your heart to Him, you receive the salvation. But discipleship is a process. Discipleship is a path. And it's a path where you are gradually moving away from a self-centered existence towards a Christ-centered existence. Well, the difference is when you're living as a self-centered person, you can't experience and know and really live the love of God because the love of God is essentially focusing on other people, meeting other people's needs, helping other people. This is what I call the ministry of one anothering. It's where we love one another, we pray for one another, we help, for, help one another, we edify one another, we encourage one another. And that is difficult. Actually, it's impossible for the self-centered person to be concerned with the needs of other people. So one of the characteristics of, of a spiritually mature person, a spiritually mature individual, is they are more concerned with meeting the needs of others than they are getting their own needs met.
But none of us begin that way. We all begin as inherently self-centered. Now, if you have 7 billion people on the planet, each with their own pursuit of happiness, and each inherently self-centered, you're going to have problems. <laughs> and compounded by the fact that we are so easily offended and we tend to react negatively to perceived threats from others. So we are pursuing our own idea of happiness, and it may be safety, it may be security, it may be money, it may be material possessions, it may be the man or the woman of our dreams. And when anyone gets in the way of our happiness, it's our human nature, our human self-centered instinct to become offended, to, be, to feel threatened, and to react negatively to what we perceive to be threats from others. Maybe it's not a threat, but it, it doesn't matter. If we perceive that someone is being hostile to us, or if we perceive that someone is disrespecting us, or if we perceive that someone is competing with us and might have an advantage over us, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. Your perception is your reality, and so we tend to be very negative, we react negatively to that person, and this is where conflict arises in our relationships. It doesn't take any work, here's the other thing, it doesn't take any work for relationships to self-destruct. If you want to have conflict, if you want to see a relationship self-destruct, basically just take your hands off of it and just let it drift. Don't work at it. Don't try to improve it. Just let things go. And relationships left to their own devices will deteriorate. They will stagnate and they will die. So in all of your relationships, your relationships are either getting better or they're dying. There's no such thing as, as maintenance. We talk about, we'll talk about maintaining relationships, but really there is no maintenance. In maintaining a relationship, you are constantly growing and improving that relationship even as you maintain it. The point of maintenance in a relationship, maintaining the relationship, means you're keeping it alive, you're helping it to grow. And a lot of these principles have their basis in your spiritual relationship with God first and foremost. If you can grasp the basics of a relationship with God, you can understand how to have relationships with anybody because those principles are the same. But there are so many people, unfortunately, who really don't understand what a relationship is. And the reason they don't understand it is because most of us have dysfunctional relationships that we grew up with. We grew up in a dysfunctional family. We grew up with dysfunctional brothers and sisters. Um, psychologists like to blame the parents. And it's, it's not too far from the mark to say most of us have issues because of our parents. Most of us are coming from broken homes where there are dysfunctional relationships, dysfunctional families, and very few role models, very few examples of someone who was a spiritual uh, mentor or someone who was just a, a good 
uh, role model for us in relationships. So most of us have got some work that we have to do in, in these areas. Or what happens is, this is what I call the generational curse. People say, Brother Chip, is there such a thing as a generational curse? Well, it's not a generational curse the way you think it is. The generational curse is you repeat the sins of your parents. So if your parents were dysfunctional, Odds are you're going to pick up on those bad habits and you're going to behave that way to your children. Not all the time, but the majority of the time, that's the natural course of the way relationships work. We pick up bad habits from our parents. Then we either go to the opposite extreme and we grow up and we say, I'm never going to treat my kids the way I treated, the way my parents treated me. So then you go to the opposite or you end up being exactly the way your parents were to your kids. But most of us have dysfunctional relationships and very few role models. So the point is we have to learn how to be in a relationship with other people and in a relationship with God. The fact of the matter is this, if you have problems in your family, if you had a dysfunctional relationship with your father or with your mother, I can almost guarantee you some of that is carrying over into your relationship with God. So we say that God is our father and we have this relationship with our father. If the relationship with your earthly father was not perfect or he was absent or he was abusive, I can almost guarantee you that your relationship with God is going to be dysfunctional until you examine that, until there's healing that takes place. I'm not saying that it's destined to be that way, but I am saying that it's going to take some work on our part to overcome those things in the past and to be able to press forward with good, healthy relationships with God. And if you don't have that healthy relationship with God, first and foremost, it's going to be very difficult to have good, healthy relationships with other people. So relationships are difficult because people are difficult. And so we want to share uh, some strategies with you tonight based on scriptural principles to try and help mitigate some of that dysfunction so that we can break that generational curse and not make the same mistakes in all of our relationships, but learn from our mistakes and go on to have happy and healthy relationships with others as much as lies with us. So if we now consider four spheres of relationship. And let's look at how the Bible classifies our relationships. And I think you'll be surprised after we go through these just how many relationships you actually have already, depending on your age and where you are and what your manner of life is. But I like to classify all of them into four areas. So let's look at them right now. First, there is your spiritual relationship. 
Second, your family relationships. Thirdly, your work relationships. And fourth, your community relationships. Well, we'll look at each one of those individually. And so let's begin with your spiritual relationships. Well, first and foremost, at the top of your list is your spiritual relationship with God. And we can learn everything that we need to know to have good relationships with one another. We can learn by how God reached out to us in establishing a relationship with us. God took the initiative. It says that God so loved the world that he gave. God took the initiative. He didn't wait for us to come to him, but he reached out to us to make it possible for us to have a relationship with him. And that is really the basis of every other kind of relationship. It's your spiritual relationship with God. Now, in our discipleship course, Embrace the Cross, really that whole course, there's a section in there on relationships, but really the whole course is about how to deepen and strengthen your relationship with God. Because it's my belief that the stronger your relationship with God, the stronger and better and more healthy your relationships are going to be in the body of Christ, in your immediate family, in the place where you work or do business, and in the community at large. But it all begins here with your spiritual relationship with God. And we'll talk about the different factors that go into successful relationships a little bit later on. Right now, what I'm giving you is the big picture overview, all the different possibilities of relationships that Scripture discusses. Obviously, Scripture has quite a bit to say about your relationship with God. But then, because we have a relationship with God, and that's a spiritual relationship, we also have spiritual relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Scripture teaches that all who are one in Christ, all who are believers in him, all disciples of Jesus, are formed together into one body. It's referred to as the body of Christ. And it's actually also referred to as the family of God. And this is where the idea of brothers and sisters in Christ comes in. It's not just a, a, a catchphrase or just some kind of a technical term, but it's an actual spiritual truth that we are members of one body and members of the family of God, with God being our Father, Jesus Christ being our oldest brother, and then all of us being brothers and sisters joined together in the bonds of a spiritual relationship with one another. So what does that mean? Well, it means that our spiritual relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ have the potential to be deeper and stronger and more lasting than even our family relationships, our friends, the people that we work with, because our commonality, our bond, our communion, our fellowship is based on an eternal 
principle. And it's the principle that we are all one body in Christ. It's called the Fellowship of the Son, S-O-N. And Scripture says in 1 John chapter 1 that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So all of this relates to our spiritual relationship. Now, it needs to be understood and underlined that we only have a relationship with our brothers and sisters so long as we maintain our relationship to the Father. That's why Jesus says, live in me and I will live in you. And as we live in union and fellowship with the Lord, we will have fellowship with one another, walking in the light. So that is the basis of our spiritual relationship with God and with one another. So then, out from there, expanding the circle a little bit, we begin to include our family, and this refers to our immediate natural family. The Bible talks about our parents. It says, children, honor your parents. And so, within this family, we also have our siblings, our natural brothers and sisters. And then, obviously, there is there are children in these families that constitute a relationship that Scripture also talks about. Most, most of what Scripture has to say about family relationships are found in Ephesians 5.22. Ephesians 5.22. Um, let's turn there and, and just read that quickly. My goal tonight is not to give you specific instructions for each one of these relationships, but simply to touch upon the fact that Scripture mentions all of these relationships. All of these different relationships can be categorized into these four areas. So we talked about your spiritual relationships. Scripture also talks about family relationships. Ephesians 5.22, it talks about the marriage relationship. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands and everything. So that's instructions to wives. Then he talks to husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And then it goes on and continues on in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. And then fathers... In verse 4 of Ephesians 6, Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So all of these instructions are having to do with the family relationship. And this family relationship also includes marriage, even though marriage somehow did not make it onto this slide for reasons that I don't understand. Marriage is a definite definite part of the family relationship. Now, what's interesting to me is that you pass through these different relationships as you grow older in your family. You start out as a child having a relationship with your parents and your siblings. 
Then as you get older, you enter into a marriage relationship. Not, you know, if, if you're married, you enter into a married relationship, perhaps, uh, and then you begin to have children of your own, and now the roles are reversed. And this is when um, all the sowing and the reaping takes place. All this, all that was sowed in you as a child begins to be reaped, and the sins of the fathers pass on to the next generation. Well, hopefully we can improve our basic understanding of relationships so that we don't pass on those generational curses and we don't follow in the footsteps of whatever dysfunction or hurt or abuse we might have experienced, you're not bound to behave the way your parents behaved. But actually, you can find healing in the Lord, and you can come to a place where a lot of people need to forgive their parents. They need to come to a place of letting go and understanding, you know what, mom and dad weren't perfect Actually, they were pretty rotten, perhaps. You, maybe you had bad parents. See, the world would say, well, it's not your fault. You had rotten parents. Your parents were terrible. But as believers in the Lord, we can say, you know what? My parents weren't, uh, weren't good parents. They made a lot of mistakes with me. But the Lord has healed me. The Lord has uh, enabled me to be able to have a relationship with my kids. And it's a healthy relationship. And I have broken the generational curse. And so that is certainly, not only is it, is it possible, it's very frequent when we go to the Lord and we let go of the past. It's part of the process of healing and moving on is recognizing that your, your childhood wasn't perfect, but that's okay. Few people have perfect parents, few people have perfect childhoods. So these are the different relationships. All of these are happening in the context of the family. And it's interesting if you get married and have children of your own, and then they have children of their own, you pass through all of these different levels. You graduate from one level of relationship to another, and the process continues on and on and on. So then let's expand out from that a little bit more and let's talk about the next sphere of relationship or the next area of relationship and that is the work environment. I, I would assume that most people living or uh, listening to me right now are not independently wealthy, meaning you probably have to go to work in order to pay your bills or perhaps you have worked all of your life and now you are retired. Or maybe you're disabled and you're not able to go to work. But the point is, most people listening to me have to work for a living or they have to do something to pay their bills, which means you have to have good working relationships with a lot of people in order to go out and be a productive member of society. Meaning, you've got relationships with the people that you work with. That's one level of relationships, whether it's a small business or a large company. You have people that you work with, your co-workers. Then you have people that you work for. These would be your managers or the boss or the president of the company or the director of the organization. 
Or if you work for a small business, maybe it's the owner that you're working for. So people you work with, people you work for, and then there are people maybe who work for you. If you own the business, you have employees. If you are a manager or somebody who is in charge of other people, then you have people who work for you. And interestingly enough, Scripture also talks about these working relationships. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, "...bond servants be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh." with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. In other words, you should work hard for the people who are paying your paycheck. And then it talks about masters, or to bring it into more up-to-date language, because we don't really have bond servants and masters these days, but we certainly have employees and employers. And so the word to, em to employers or masters in Ephesians 6, 9 is to do the same things to them, treat them respectfully, it says, giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. James, the book of James also talks about working relationships. Many of the parables that Jesus shared had to do with faithfulness in work relationships. And when I look in scripture to see what is the singular greatest example of someone who was a pleasure to have uh, working, who would be a pleasure to have working for you and was faithful to do what he had to do, carry out his responsibilities, I immediately think of Daniel. And I look at Daniel's whole attitude, his whole approach to his work, so much so that when the jealous people came around to try and take his position or try to find something to accuse him of, it says they could find no fault in anything that Daniel did because everything he did was honest, it was right, it was responsible. And it was perfect. They could find nothing to accuse him of insofar as his work was concerned. What a powerful testimony that is. And I wonder if that's the testimony that we have when we go to work. You know, a, a lot of people, they can't, it seems they can't get along with the people they work with unless they're Christians. And they're praying that they'll get a, 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 a Christian, a, a job in a better environment, in a Christian environment. And then maybe they get that job and they don't do any better there than they did in the other job. So I don't think the issue is the environment. When I look at Daniel, he's working for a pagan king. He's in the, the kingdom of Babylon there. He's been taken uh, hostage away from his home country and in a foreign land. And it's a very alien environment. And you would understand if Daniel said, um, I'm not... I'm not working in Babylon. I'm not helping this king. This king is enslaving us and he's conquered my nation and I'm going to fight him. I'm not going to work for him. I'm not going to help him. But Daniel had a different attitude and he understood that there was something more at stake here and he maintained a good testimony uh, there at work. Now he was attacked by others, but because he was faithful, it says, he was faithful and so God honored his faithfulness, and soon Daniel was chief of the whole nation under the king. Everybody reported to Daniel. 
So you may not be in a position where you have that much responsibility and that much authority and that much much recognition. But the point is, these are areas of relationship and they're significant because it consumes a large part of your life. Most people work full-time. Some people work part-time. But if you work full-time, you're putting in eight to nine to 10 hours a day. That's 40 or 50 hours a week. That's almost a third of your life that you're spending with people you work with, people you work for, or people who work for you. So your ability to get a job, your ability to keep a job, your ability to get paid what you are worth has a lot to do your advancement, promotion, raises, benefits, has a lot to do with how you relate to and work with your co-workers, your managers, the boss. And if you are an employer, you're not off the hook. If you don't treat your employees with respect, pay them fairly, treat them uh, as, they, as you would like to be treated, you're not going to find people who want to work for you. They're going to be absent they're going to be lackadaisical in their work. They're not going to be faithful. They're going to moonlight. They'll look for other opportunities. And if someone offers them a dollar more an hour, they'll leave you and they'll go take that other job. So it works both ways. Mutual respect is applicable. Coworkers, people you work for, people who work for you all of these working relationships. And it doesn't matter whether you own the business or whether you work in the business. We all have a responsibility towards one another in our relationships at work. And then there's a relationship that you have. I'm still in the work area, the work sphere of relationship. There's customers that you have. If you don't treat your customers with respect, if you don't value the relationships that you have with your customers and your clients, guess what? You're not going to be in business for very long. That's why businesses have a thing called customer service. It's supposed to be where uh, customers can get issues resolved. And uh, sometimes it, it works the way it should, sometimes it doesn't. But the point is, Here's relationships. So business has to be concerned not just with the employees and not with the people who are running it. You have to be concerned with making your customers happy. So that's why these relationships are so important. You could be a great person to work with, a great person to work for, a great person to have people working for you. But if you don't treat your customers and your clients with respect, if you don't love your customers, if you don't give them products and services that really help improve the quality of their life, they're not going to buy from you and you're not going to have a business and they'll go elsewhere. So I'm just trying to communicate with you. I know maybe most people on here don't think this really applies to them because they don't own a business or maybe you do. But the point is all of these working relationships are everywhere you go. Uh, so all of this has to do with the sphere of work. Then, uh, the last thing we'll look at here in the work area is your professional relationships, colleagues, 
uh, people that are in your professional network, um, other other businesses, uh, so that it may not people may not be people that you work directly with, but they're people that are in your industry and people that you know of. You'd be surprised if you made a list of everybody that you know in a professional relationship or people that you know of, people you've worked with in the past, you'd be surprised at how many people you have touched in the last 12 months or in the last five years or in the last 10 years. So the point is our working relationships comprise about a third of our time and uh, can be very impactful uh, for better or for worse. Now, it's a fact that most people hate their job and they hate their work. When I say most people, I mean two-thirds of people surveyed are not happy at work. And most people, the reason they're not happy is a direct result of the relationship they have with their boss or and or the people that they work with. So do you see how it would be beneficial to learn some wisdom keys on how to have good relationships? I think it would be very valuable and very profitable from a spiritual perspective and even from a financial perspective if we learn how to apply these biblical principles in all of our relationships. Well, then expanding out from that, and this would be the largest area of relationship, and that is the general community. And in community or in a social environment, this is where we include your neighbors, your friends, even your enemies. In Matthew 5.43, Jesus reminded us that we don't just love our friends, but we are to love our enemies as well. So I'm including enemies in your list of relationships. You say, well, Brother Chip, I don't have any enemies. Well, that, that is great if you don't have any enemies. But let me ask you a question. Do you ever have conflicts with people who are seem like they're out to get you or out to sabotage you or are gossiping about you or spreading false information about you or seem to, whether they mean it or not, just seem to constantly antagonize you or get in your way? Well, I'm not saying that you become obsessed with them and think of them as your enemy to the extent that you hate them. Quite the contrary or that you fight them, quite the opposite, in fact. But Jesus says, recognize them for what they are and love them even though they are your enemies. <laughs> and people say, well, I just don't know if I can do that. But if you, if you will take these relationship keys that I'll share with you tonight and you begin to apply them even in your relationships with people that you don't get along with, people that you might consider your enemies because they're really out to get you or at least they're out to advantage themselves even if it means that you are disadvantaged. Well, if you take these keys that I'll share with you, I can't promise you that all of your enemies will suddenly have a change of heart. But I will say that if you apply these principles for stronger relationships, it says in the book of Proverbs that a wise man is able to make even his enemies to be at peace with him. And I think you'll have a lot better chance of turning enemies into friends if you 
take what I'll share with you and begin to apply them, e- apply it even in your relationships with people you don't get along with. And that's really the whole point. Even if you can elevate the relationship to a place where they're not actively trying to sabotage you, that would be an improvement, wouldn't it? So we're looking to improve all of these relationships as much as possible. The other area of community, and this this is the largest sphere, it, it's just generally everybody else in the world, neighbors, friends, enemies, then there's government. There's a, You have relationships with the government. It talks about it in Romans 13, that we're to be submitted to those that are in authority over us in the government. And it means practical things like pay your taxes, don't break the law, don't cause trouble. Now, we're fortunate, many of us, that we live in in nations, in countries where we have a say-so somewhat in the political process. At the very least, we can vote people in or vote people out, so we do have some say-so in the government. But bear in mind, when Romans, the letter to the Romans was written by Paul, around about A.D. 30 or A.D. Uh, 45 or 50, he was writing to people that were under the Roman Empire. They didn't have a choice. They were a, they were conquerors going out and, and conquering other nations. So for Paul to say, hey, submit to those that are in authority over you, obey them as you would obey the Lord, pay your taxes, give duty to whom duty is due, custom to whom custom is due, taxes to whom taxes is due, honor and, and respect those that are in authority over you, that was quite a thing to say in the middle of a, of a totalitarian type of government there. So it's interesting, isn't it? Well, you and I live in a, in a time in history in, in which, for the most part, I think most of the people living here are and actually now here's someone who says that they're listening from Kuwait right now. So you might not have the same freedom to be able to vote and be able to have a say-so in your government the way we do in the United States or the way people do in, um, in other parts of the world. So regardless of where you are listening from, uh, the Bible speaks about the relationship that we are to have with the government as far as Christians are concerned. And then Paul's advice to Timothy was to pray for kings and for all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So we are to pray for those that are in authority over us in the government. And the prayer is that they would leave us alone. (laughs) Pray that they would leave us alone because the government is best when it stays out of your business, when you are obeying the law, paying your taxes, not causing any problems, and government just kind of stays out of the way, that's the best situation for everybody. So Paul says, pray for kings and for all who are in authority that we may lead, not that they may lead. You're praying for them that they would leave you alone, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So if we are honest citizens and we are godly citizens and we're obeying the law and we're paying our taxes and we're not causing any problems, We should pray that the government will leave us alone. It's only when the government begins to interfere 
that it causes a problem for Christians. And unfortunately, in many parts of the world right now, Christians are being persecuted. They are, being, they are suffering for their faith. And some of that is a direct result of government interference. Some of it is the result of government not getting involved because the government is not favorable to Christians. And so the ideal situation is that you have a government that is at least tolerant of your religious beliefs and that it allows you to live your live out your faith in Christ. It allows you to live your faith and to express your faith without persecution. That would be the ideal thing. But the point is, all of us have some kind of a relationship to the government, and at the very least, we are to pray for them to leave us alone, and we're to obey the laws as long as they don't conflict with the laws of God, and we're to pay our taxes um, and try to be under the radar as much as possible. Don't cause any problems. Don't, don't, um, don't attract attention to yourself. Don't be a, a rebel. Now, you see in the book of Acts that when the preaching of the gospel was forbidden, that they said, we have to obey God rather than man. And so they made a conscious decision at that point that they would go against what the authorities said, but they paid the price for that. They submitted to the punishment for that, and they suffered for their faith and were they, it says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. So you count the cost and you do what you have to do. But those are the spheres of relationship. And when you consider just how many relationships you have, it's, um, it's pretty interesting. All the people that you touch and all the people that you are interacting with on so many different levels on a daily basis. So... I want to share with you four wisdom keys for excellent relationships. Not just to have good relationships, but excellent relationships. I'm going to give you four wisdom keys for excellent relationships. And why four? Because four is a good number. It's small enough to where it's going to be simple it's going to be easy for you to remember, and it's going to be very easy for you to evaluate your relationships and see how you're doing based on these four wisdom keys. And you will be able to quickly identify areas that need improvement, and you can quickly make those improvements and begin to see improvements in all your relationships. Well, the first wisdom key, and we'll go through and discuss each one. The first is communication. It's the foundation of every relationship. There's got to be communication. Secondly, what, what I will call contribution. So there's communication. There's contribution. Thirdly, consistency. And fourth, commitment. So these are the four wisdom keys for excellent relationships. Communication, contribution, consistency, and commitment. So let's drill down into each one of these and look at them individually. What are the main elements in communication? Well, if you want to have a strong relationship, 
And we're going to apply these practically. I'm going to take uh, your relationship with God and talk about how it works, how this applies in, in that relationship. We'll talk about marriage, how it works in a marriage, and we'll talk about in a relationship at work, how it, if you're working for someone, how it benefits. The point is that all of these keys work in any relationship, regardless of the relationship, even in your relationship with God and in every other kind of relationship. The first is communication, and that communication needs to be regular. Regular. Now, how regular is regular? Well, it depends on the depth and the importance of the relationship. So you might have more regular communication with your wife or with your husband than you would have with your senator or your congressman. But the point is, if you want to have a relationship, regular communication is important. The other thing that has to happen in communication is communication must be honest. So first of all, it must be regular. Communication must be regular. It must be frequent enough that you're maintaining communication. And I harp on this because in my experience, it is the very first thing that, that indicates a relationship is going downhill when communication is irregular, infrequent, or non-existent. And the first thing you have to do to get that relationship back on track is you have to resume regular communication. Well then, secondly, that communication has to be honest. It does no good to communicate dishonestly with somebody else. And you see this happen a lot with married couples. The wife looks upset. The husband says, what's wrong, honey? And the wife says, nothing. <laughs> you know something's wrong. <laughs> but she says, nothing. And so that's not honest communication, is it? Honest communication would be, well, yeah, something is bothering me. Better yet, honest communication would be bringing it up that here's something that's bothering me and not waiting to be asked. But this is just a basic rule of communication. Communication must be honest in order for it to be effective. I hope that makes sense. Third, communication must be respectful. We must be respectful in our communications with one another. So how do you communicate in a respectful way? Well, first of all, it means that you should listen first and foremost. So many times when we go into a communication opportunity with other people, our first instinct is to open our mouth and begin talking. We take the initiative, we begin to speak, we begin to talk, and we air out everything that's on our mind. And you would have a better result, and it would be more respectful, if you first listened. Now, I know that sounds very basic and very elementary, but the next time you get into a conversation with someone, just be very conscious of who is doing most of the talking and 
how good of a job are you doing at respectfully listening? And as Stephen Covey said, seek first to understand before you try to be understood. So many of us in our relationships with one another, we spend all of our effort trying to make our point, make ourselves be understood, but we don't spend nearly enough time trying to understand the other person's point of view. And if you simply went into that communication and you began it with, and you began it by saying, um, you know, I'm not really sure what, what the issue is, but how do you see it? And from your perspective, what needs to happen? Or from your perspective, what do you see is the issue here? And just let the other person take the initiative, let them speak, let them get their, their point out and get all of their arguments out of the way. And just listen and don't argue, just respectfully listen and try to appreciate the other person's point of view. And that creates the need on, on their part to listen to you. And then once you've respectfully listened to their point of view, maybe your point of view gets adjusted. Or maybe you share things from your point of view that adds to the other person's point of view. And then there's a synergy that's created. There's a, there's a, a better solution that comes out of the sharing of both perspectives. But that's a lot more respectful than simply beating other people over the head with what you want to say. All right. So a lot of this is common sense, but it seems in our relationships in the heat of the moment, common sense usually gets thrown out the window when we begin to respond and react in an emotional way that is totally devoid of mutual respect. Well, the fourth tip I would have for you when it comes to communication, if you want to build relationships and strengthen relationships, try to keep the tone of your communication positive. Try to keep things positive. So let's say you did all the other things in your communication. Let's say... You are you reg, just for an example. Let's say that you regularly communicate with me, either by telephone or by email. But you regularly communicate with me, and you give me your honest input, and you're very respectful in the way that you communicate with me. But everything you say is negative. <laughs> So you regularly communicate with me, you are 100% honest with me, and you are 100% respectful every time you communicate with me, but everything you say is negative. Guess what? You're not going to build a strong relationship with me <laughs> because no one, including you, wants to hear a constant stream of negative, critical comments. So it doesn't matter how regular your communication is, how honest it is, or how respectful you are. You've got to find a way to be positive as much as possible in your communications with others. Now, this takes some practice because our tendency, isn't it, 
It's our tendency to talk about ourselves and talk about everything that's going wrong, <laughs> everything that we're struggling with. And you're not going to win friends and influence people by talking about all the negative things going on in your life, all the negative things happening in the world, all the negative things that's happening about the third party that's not there in the room at the moment that you're gossiping about. So I'm not saying that you adopt this positive thinking mindset where you don't speak the truth. Remember, honesty is also very important in your communication. But if you try, you can usually keep your tone positive. And there's even ways that you can give constructive criticism and feedback, but you do it in a positive way so that the other person is not diminished by having received your feedback and your criticism. Instead, they are enriched and they are encouraged. But it's all in how you package it. It's all in how you deliver it. So as you look at your communication skills right now in your key relationships, if it's working, if the relationship is working, you're communicating regularly, honestly, respectfully, and positively. Men, it means you tell your wife frequently how wonderful she is and how blessed you are and to have her. And wives, you do the same thing for your husbands. And parents, you do the same thing for your children. Now, don't expect children will do it to, back to the parents until they're 30 or 40 years old. <laughs> but you can still, even in that, in that younger age, you can still encourage regular communication, honest communication, respectful and keep it positive as much as possible. Now, when you're disciplining, dis, when you know, when you're disciplining your child or you're disciplining an employee, or you're having to deal with an irate customer, or you're having to deal with an abusive situation, obviously it's going to be difficult to maintain a positive tone throughout the whole communication. But the point is, if you maintain a positive communication, generally speaking which means you are communicating frequently and often enough so that the here's what I'm trying to say if the only time you ever have a conversation with with your kids or with your spouse or with your boss is when there's some kind of a problem or some kind of any some kind of a negative event then automatically when there's an opportunity to communicate it's always in the context of something that's negative. So my suggestion to you is, if you want to strengthen relationships, is make sure that you're communicating at times other than when something negative is going on, which means you're being positive, you're being encouraging, you're looking for something um, that is actually uplifting and edify, uh, and edifying so that on occasion, when you have to bring in correction, um, even though it may be negative, it's able to be received more positively because of your general overall tone. I hope that makes sense to you. So communication must be regular, honest, respectful, and positive. Well, the second wisdom key is contribution. And what do I mean by contribution? Well, I mean these things. First, when it comes to a relationship, 
Find out what the other person wants and needs. Find out what the other person wants and needs. Because what you want to do in a relationship is give people what they want. A lot of times what happens is we give people what we want or we expect them to give us what we want. But the whole point of a relationship is to contribute. And the second aspect of this contribution is give more than you take. Now, if you just did this one thing and made sure in all of your relationships that you are giving more than you are taking. Now, I understand there's exceptions to the rule. I understand in some toxic relationships, and we'll talk about that in the next session, some toxic relationships, the whole problem is you're giving too much. So you see how that could be a problem. But we're not talking about a toxic relationship right now. We're talking about a normal relationship, one that's not abusive and one that's not toxic. We'll talk about later in another session how to deal with those dysfunctional relationships. But right now what we're talking about is a relationship that is based on love. And love means I'm going to give of myself and I'm going to give without any expectation of receiving in return. So it means in this relationship as a husband, I'm going to give more than I take. I'm going to give and not ask for anything in return. It means as an employee, I'm going to put in a full day's work. I'm, go I'm going to give the best that I have to give. And what I'm going to give my employer is going to be worth more than the paycheck that I'm taking at the end of the week. So I'm more valuable to them in that regard. But it's impossible, really, to give more than you take until you first find out what it is that other person wants. What do they need? What do they want? This applies to a business trying to provide services or products to customers. The biggest mistake I see businesses make is they come up with a product or a service that they like and then they try to go out and sell it to people, but it is not what people want. It's not what they need. They want something else, but you're not providing what they want. So they go elsewhere. Same thing in a relationship. You get two people together in a marriage and the husband says, you know, I just don't understand. I go, I go to work. I, I make $200,000 a year. I buy her all the jewelry. I bought her a big house. I bought her a big car last year. I'm giving her all these things and I don't know why she's not happy. And the wife is over there saying, I don't want all that. I don't want the money. I don't want the cars. I don't want the houses. I want you to pay attention to me. I want you to listen to me. I want you to tell me that I'm beautiful or whatever it is. But what's the problem there? He's giving, he's giving, he's giving, but he's not giving her what she wants. She's not, he's not giving her what she needs. He's assuming that she wants certain things and that by giving her certain things, he assumes he's making her happy when really that's not at all what she wants. So first, in your relationships, find out what the other person wants and find out what they need. Well, how do you do that? goes back to communication. You ask. Ask them. How can I help you? What if an employee, just think about it in a work relationship, what if an employee went to their 
boss and said, you know, I'm really not sure if I'm giving you what you need out of my position. What, what could I do to give you more of what you need from someone in this position? Or what is it that maybe it's not in my job description, but what is it that you really need me to provide you that I'm not providing you with? And either you're going to hear you're doing a great job and, and there's nothing else you can do, or you're going to uncover a new opportunity that you can provide something to your employer that they really want. Maybe you think you're doing a great job, but you're not giving them what they really need. And by asking them, well, what do you really need me to do? What do you really want me to do? How can I best meet the needs of the company in this particular position? You might uncover opportunities you didn't know existed, and it could open the door to more advancement, uh, greater salary, who knows? But the point is, contribution, that's a critical key element of a relationship. Now, most self-centered relationships are based on what I can get out of it, and that's a concern. Those relationships are doomed to fail. You have to go into a relationship with the understanding and with the expectation. If you want to make it an excellent relationship, you have to go into it with the understanding that I'm going to give more than I take. I'm going to contribute more. I'm going to give more of myself. You say, well, what if I do all that and the other person doesn't give back to me in return? Well, it's possible that they won't. However, in a normal relationship, most people will reciprocate. If you give more, they'll give more. Most people will understand, for example, in a marriage, that it takes both people working together to make a great marriage. But your attitude and your demeanor and your, appro your approach has to be, I'm going to give more than I take. I'm not going to ask for anything in return. Harold may not change, ladies. Harold may not change. Harold may just still be the same Harold that he was before. He may not ever get any better. But you can be better. You can give more. You can contribute more. And in the process of giving over and above to a relationship, at some point, Harold is going to have to make a decision. At some point, perhaps he'll wake up. Same thing with your employer. But the idea is, if you want a strong relationship, give more than you take. What happens if everyone takes... If everyone in a relationship takes, 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 and doesn't give, then you end up with bankruptcy. So that's a disaster in a relationship. If everybody is withdrawing and no one's making a deposit, then the bank goes bankrupt. And in your relationships, they'll go bankrupt every time if you, give, if you take more than you give. Okay, third wisdom key is consistency. Consistency in your relationships. I'm giving you the four wisdom keys for excellent relationships. So we have communication, contribution, consistency. And what does consistency mean? Well, consistency means if the relationship is important, I'm going to communicate and contribute to it regularly. And by doing it regularly, by regularly communicating, 
and regularly giving more than I take, what you're doing is you're building trust in that relationship because everyone has their, their guard up. Everyone is expecting something negative and here you are with something positive and reinforcing. Everyone has got their guard up because most people are takers and not givers, but here you are giving and contributing. Now, if you do that once or twice, it's admirable and it gets attention and interest. But if you do it on a regular, consistent basis, it builds trust. And you've got to have trust in a relationship. And trust isn't built in a day. Trust is not built from a single communication. Trust is not built because you did something one time. You brought home flowers one time and you contributed something to your wife's happiness once. Consistency is the multiplier of the communication and contribution. Consistency is where the trust element builds in a relationship. Trust begins to build when people see that you are consistently communicating and contributing to that relationship. But you must be doing it on a regular basis in order for trust. If, it's, if it happens irregularly or infrequently, it doesn't happen often enough to reinforce in, in that other person's mind that they can trust you in this relationship. The second aspect of consistency is congruency. You must be congruent. Your beliefs, your words, and your actions must be congruent. You must be, you must be consistent in what you say you believe, the words that you say, and the actions that you take, and that contributes honesty to your relationships. So here's the bottom line. If you say one thing but you do another, you're not consistent and the relationships will suffer. If you tell your employer, this job is important to me, but then you, do, you show up late every day, you're not being congruent and your relationship as well as your employment is going to suffer for it. If you tell your wife that she's the most important thing to you, but then you spend most of your evenings out doing something else, you're not being congruent with what you say and what you do. And therefore, the perception is you're not being honest. And so then trust begins to deteriorate. So you see, you must be congruent with what you believe, your values, your words, and your actions. Because other people in this relationship, they are evaluating you in your marriage, in your, in your uh, re working relationships. They are evaluating whether or not you are trustworthy and honest. So consistency is important. Anybody can communicate and contribute once in a while. But if you want that relationship to be strong and to get stronger, then you have to be consistent. So then the fourth and the final wisdom key for excellent relationships is commitment. 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 It's so easy in the society that we live in today just to quit and give up. If something doesn't work out, we quit. 
Well, when it comes to relationships, if you want to build strong, excellent relationships, you've got to be committed. It doesn't take any work at all. It doesn't take any effort at all to have a bad relationship. Just let things go. And just like a garden that is overgrown with weeds, if you don't take care of it, relationships are the same way. If you don't maintain it, if you don't work at it, relationships deteriorate. So here's two key things with commitment. First, decide on the length of time that you're going to be committed. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it depends on the kind of relationship that you're committing to as to the length of time that you're going to be committed. For example, how long should you commit to a marriage relationship? Does anybody have the answer? How long should you commit to a marriage relationship? Well, if you believe the Word of God, then the answer is marriage is a lifelong commitment. So you decide right in the beginning of the relationship, how long you're going to be committed to that particular relationship. And if it's a marriage relationship, then the answer is you're committed for life. That's it. So you've just decided on the length of time that you'll be committed. Now, where is it appropriate maybe that you don't necessarily commit to the life, the rest of your life in a relationship? Well, it could be an employment opportunity. And with some employment opportunities I've had, whether it's a consulting relationship or whether it's uh, actually working for someone, I've said, okay, I'm going to commit to this for one year. I'll commit to this for one year and then I'll reevaluate this relationship at, at the end of that year. Well, what that does is it means I'm committing to the relationship. So the first time there's an, an argument or a disagreement, I'm not ready to just quit altogether. I've already made a commitment to this employer or to this client for a year's commitment or a six-month commitment or whatever the case may be. But it's important that you decide in advance the length of time that you're going to be committed. Now, obviously, in a family relationship with parents and children, with marriage, you're going to be committed for a lifetime. But in other relationships, it might be good to decide in advance the length of time that you're going to be committed. Why? Because that brings into it the second aspect of commitment. What you don't want to do is you don't want to threaten the relationship the first time you don't get your way. So that means if you're committed in a lifetime relationship with your spouse. You don't say when you get into an argument or you have a disagreement, you don't use divorce as an option. You don't threaten the end of the relationship. You don't threaten to walk out on the other person. You don't threaten to abandon the relationship. You don't quit on the job. Because as long as you are committed to the relationship, the relationship can continue. You can continue to communicate. You can continue to contribute. And if you are consistently communicating and contributing by giving more than you take, that relationship is bound to improve. But if you question the commitment, if you're not committed and you see a way out, 
you'll be tempted to take that way out. If you see divorce as an option, you'll be tempted to take that option. So my suggestion, and I've been married for 23 years, we've never spoken the word divorce. We've never considered it as an option, and therefore it's not an option. And so we haven't had to, to we, because we're committed for life, we communicate, we contribute, we're consistent in that, we're committed to one another, therefore quitting on the relationship or even threatening to quit on the relationship has never been an option, never even been discussed. But what I see in a lot of situations, in a lot of married couples, for example, is one will get mad or one will get hurt and they'll threaten to walk out or take the kids or get a divorce or move back in with mom and dad. And if you value that relationship, don't ever threaten the existence of that relationship by making those kinds of remarks like that because it sends a signal that you're not 100% committed. So commitment is a big key. It means you're going to hang in there, you're going to keep communicating, you're going to keep contributing, and you're going to be consistent. Now, when we get to the session where we talk about toxic relationships, we're going to discuss the appropriate times when you do need to get out of a relationship. But most people who opt for divorce don't do it appropriately because of a toxic or an abusive relationship. They do it as a matter of convenience or as a matter of they're personally fed up and they're ready to move on. And that's the wrong reason. So decide on the length of time you'll be committed. And it also, in, in these relationships that are transient, meaning um, you're committed to a company for a year, you're committed to a business relationship for six months or to a client relationship for a year or whatever, and then you're going to reevaluate. It gives you an opportunity to come back again and say, you know, is this relationship working? If it is, let's keep doing it. If it's not, how can we improve it and keep working moving forward? Or do we need to just shake hands and, and move on? So those are, those are options that you have when you have decided in advance the length of time that you're going to be committed. As an employer, most people will commit to you as an employee, a new employee, for maybe 30 days probation or 90 days probation before they decide if they're going to hire you on a permanent basis. But once they do, there's a commitment there. And then there's a process in place for evaluating your performance. So commitment varies depending on the kind of relationship that uh, you're involved with, but it's something to bear in mind. Okay, practical application, we've been talking about that already, but let's, let's take each one of these elements, because I said that these keys apply to all of your relationships. How does this example these four keys apply to your spiritual relationship with God. Well, first of all, communication. What do we call communication with God? We call it prayer. So if you want a strong relationship with the Lord, 
You've got to be a praying person. You've got to talk to God and you've got to listen to God. The primary way to talk to God is through prayer. The primary way to listen to God is by reading the word. Not that he can't speak to you in other ways, but I'm saying it's the primary way that you hear from God. So to, so communication means speaking and listening, but communication is a big part of your walk with the Lord. And it's the key thing that's going to strengthen your relationship with the Lord. Well, what about contribution in your relationship? What do you contribute to the Lord in your relationship? Well, first we know that God has already contributed everything to you. It says in Ephesians 1.3 that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8, it says that he's given us his son. And if he's given us his son, how much more will he freely give us all things? So God has already contributed everything that he has and everything that he is to have this relationship with you. Now, what have you contributed to him? Well, you contribute, hopefully, as a disciple of the Lord, you've contributed your very life. You've given your very heart and your very life over to him. But there's this ongoing contribution that you're making by ministering to the Lord. Remember, we said that one way to figure out the best way to contribute to a relationship is to ask, what do you want? What do you need? And we do that every day when we pray, not our will, but your will be done. Your kingdom come and your will be done. So, Lord, what do you need? How can I pray for your need and for your will and for your kingdom and for your purpose? ministering to the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. There is someone that David is contributing in his relationship with God. It's not all receiving, bless me, bless me, bless me. It's bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In Acts 13, 2, it says they minister to the Lord with prayer and fasting. It's not that God does not bless you and God does not minister to you. Certainly he does. So then how much more? Can we contribute back to that relationship and reach up to him and minister to him? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. So there's contribution going both ways in our relationship with God. And then consistency in that relationship we call faithfulness. It's a fruit of the Spirit to be consistent in our walk with God. Not on fire one day and backslidden the next, but we're consistently Communicating with God, communing with God, fellowshipping with Him, ministering to Him, contributing, walking with Him. We're consistent in that. It strengthens our spiritual life. And it leads us to the fourth thing, which is commitment. So we're committed to this narrow path. Paul says, I fought a good fight. I, I, ran the, I ran the race, and the goal for the Christian is to finish the race that is set before us with joy, to be committed. And when you take up the cross and follow Jesus, he says, count the cost in advance. Go ahead and decide right now how long you're going to be committed. And just like the marriage relationship, I believe your relationship with God is a lifetime commitment. So all of these things contribute to a strong relationship with God. Well, then what about a marriage? We've already applied these to marriage. If you want to have a strong marriage, you need to communicate with one another on a regular basis. It's not enough to talk to one another once a week. 
you got to communicate frequently on a regular basis. Contribution, you've got to give, at least have the attitude that you're going to give far more than you receive. But of course, if both people have that approach, then you're really going to have a wonderful marriage. But even if you can't get the other person quite there just now, if you decide you're going to contribute, you're going to give, you're going to encourage, you're going to support, then it's going to have a tremendous impact on the other person. And it may just save your marriage. You may single-handedly save your marriage just by deciding to give more than you take. If you do that long enough, something's going to happen one way or the other with your spouse. When you do it consistently, every day, we were, Carla and I were talking the other day about our 25th wedding anniversary. It's coming up in a little over a year. And, you know, with anniversaries, it's it's all about celebrating the marriage. But I, I, I said, you know, you really you have to celebrate your marriage every day. You can't just celebrate it once every 25 years or, or you will never make it to 25 years. <laughs> but you celebrate your marriage every day. So be consistent in your communication and in your contribution to your marriage relationship. And then, of course, there's the commitment. I mean, if you're committed to one another for life and you're celebrating your marriage every day, days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years, years turn into decades, and then there's that commitment. And so few have that commitment. So now I'm sure there's people on here listening to me now who've got challenges in their married in, in their marriage maybe you've been divorced maybe you've been remarried so the, the goal here is not to condemn whatever's happened in the past forget the past you can't change the past but it's to take this information that you have now and begin to apply it so that you don't make the same mistakes again or so that you can help other people not to make the mistakes that you made and actually have the the wisdom maybe that you didn't have before so that you can apply this in in a powerful way to your relationships going forward and or the relationships that you are currently in. Well, again, practical application to your work relationships. If you regularly communicate with the people you work for, you regularly give more than you take, in other words, if you're being paid $50,000 a year, but you are worth $100,000 or $150,000 a year to them because of the quality of the work that you do or the business that you bring in, you're contributing far more than what you're taking back in salary. You know, a lot of people, they want to, they want to get paid more than what they are worth or they want an equal exchange. And again, if you want to go into a relationship with the right attitude, it has to be not that I'm going to give you a day's work for a day's pay. It has to be I'm going to give you far more value in terms of what I'm doing for your business than what you're paying me in terms of a paycheck. If it's just equal, the way people think is uh, it's just equal and there's not much value there. Same thing if you are a business selling products and services to customers. If you're selling a product and the product is worth $100 and they pay $100, there's a little bit of, uh, I'm not so sure. 
But if the product is worth $1,000, but you're only charging $200, then there's a great perception of value there. And so you're giving, even in, even in the sales situation, you're giving more to the customer than what they're paying. You're giving them more than their money's worth. That's the point. So in all of these working relationships, you want to give more than you take. Then you add the consistency to it so that you do it on a regular basis. You're you are building trust. You're building honesty. People perceive you as a person who is congruent. What you say you believe and what you actually do is consistent and congruent. And then commitment. You just Sometimes all you have to do is just show up and be faithful. Daniel demonstrated that. Joseph demonstrated that as well in their stewardship and in their practical responsibilities. Okay, so next steps to improve your relationships. We're going to go through these very quickly. Number one, I want you to get a sheet of paper and I'd like you to make a list, please, of the four biggest relationships in your life right now. Now, your spiritual relationship, obviously that's God. I would put that at the top of your list. But then family, work, and community. And community, again, it can be friend, neighbor, whatever you want to put on there. But make a list of the four biggest relationships. I'm sure you've got lots of relationships, but I just want you to focus on the four biggest ones right now. Four key relationships. So, most, for most people, that will look something like God, my spouse, my boss, and my best friend. Or God, my daughter, my boss, and my best friend. You make that list of the four biggest relationships in your life because we're going to do something. We're going to make them stronger. Secondly, I want you to grade each of those relationships based on how you feel it's going. And just keep it simple. It's either already excellent, good, but could be better, fair, with room for improvement, or poor, which means there's a lot of work that's got to be done. So pick those relationships that are valuable, that you want to keep, that you want to improve. Number three, review the four wisdom keys for each relationship and pinpoint any weaknesses. Now remember what those four wisdom keys are. It's communication, it's contribution, it's consistency, and it's commitment. Now most of the weaknesses you're going to find is going to be in the area of communication, and in the area of contributing. But you review those four wisdom keys for each of those relationships that you listed and pinpoint any weaknesses. And what we're doing here is we're looking for ways to improve your relationships. And then I want you to start in each relationship with communication and contribution. I would like for you to communicate and contribute something fresh to each of these relationships this week without asking for anything in return. 
Now this is optional. If you want to improve your relationships, I'm trying to give you some practical suggestions on how to take what you've learned and put it into practice in a way that will actually help people and encourage people and actually give you some pleasure at the same time. The knowledge that you are working to improve and build better, better relationships, better relationship with God, better relationship with, in your marriage, in your family, better working relationships, better relationships with friends and with neighbors. Communicate and contribute something fresh to each of those relationships. Just four. Just start out small. One relationship in each area. But communicate and contribute something fresh to each of them this week without asking for anything in return. So by the time you come back next week, you will have communicated and contributed. <laughs> now use your imagination, but it could be something as simple as an email, a telephone call, a personal visit, a card, a thinking of you type of a reach out to them, a word of encouragement, sitting down having a long overdue talk, taking someone out for coffee. But the point is you're going to touch base with each of these relationships and you're going to add something to the relationship not wait for when you need something and then you try to get in touch with them <laughs> but you take the initiative now and begin to improve those relationships by communicating and contributing now how do I communicate and contribute to my relationship with God well it means that I'm going to spend time in prayer ministering to the Lord not asking for needs to be met, but just to bless him and to minister to him. So that's that's one way. Well, then just extend that out into these other areas. So communicate and contribute something fresh to each of those relationships this week. And then what you're going to do, you try it and see how it works, see how you like it. Then all you have to do to continue to improve those relationships is show consistency and commitment by regularly communicating and contributing from here on out. Now, I'm not going to tell you how regular it has to be because that depends on the nature and the depth of the relationship. Obviously, you're going to be more consistent and more committed to your marriage than you are to a relationship with your next-door neighbor. But the point is show consistency and, and some level of commitment with regular communication and contribution. So these are some practical steps that you can use to apply this teaching to improve your relationships. Now next week in session two, we're going to cover three big areas. First, we'll talk about the best way to start new relationships. Because what I have found is if you don't start relationships out on the right path, they tend to run off the rails later on. And a lot of the problems you have down the road could have been avoided if you had simply started out the right way in the beginning. And most people don't. They just they jump into a relationship and they don't give any thought to 
um, what needs to be done at the beginning of relationships to avoid future problems. So we'll talk about that next week. We'll also talk about how to deal with toxic relationships. So what I have given you tonight is best case. Here's the ideal. Here's the way it works in normal relationships. Even with people that you don't get along with all that well for whatever reason, if you take and apply these to the relationships, if you communicate honestly and regularly, if you give more than you take, and if you're consistent and congruent, and you make a commitment, even people who are not that particularly friendly towards you, you'll find will at least get to neutral, and you may even convert them into people that you can live with and work with. That's not the same thing as a toxic relationship, and that is a relationship that is abusive and poisonous and injurious to you that you need to learn how to deal with. And so we'll cover that and cover those situations in the next session. And right along with, with that is knowing when to let go. Knowing when to let go of a relationship when you have done all of these things, when you've communicated regularly, when you've contributed, when you've been, um, you've been consistent and you've been committed, but the other person has no response or the person is continually abusing you, you have to know when to let go. Parents, you have to know when to let go of your kids when they get to be a certain age. Uh, so there's, there's lots of things that we'll save for next week's session to, um, to address those particular issues. But having said that, what I've shared with you tonight will work in most situations that are not toxic, that are not abusive, that have not gone so far off the rails that they can't be repaired and restored. There are always exceptions to the rule, but first we want to get the basic foundational best case practices, best practices for relationships first and foremost. And all of this has to do with loving God and loving your neighbor. All we're talking about is practical ways to show your love and demonstrate your love so that as the Bible says, you're not just loving people in word, but you're loving them in deed and in truth. And that's ultimate congruence. When we believe that the most important thing is to love God and love your neighbor, and we say it, and then we live as if we mean it, then we are truly, truly being consistent and congruent and will enjoy excellent relationships with God and with one another. And that's really the foundation of every kind of fellowship and every kind of spiritual relationship we could hope to have with God and with one another. If you'd like to get additional teachings, audio recordings, books, and other Christ-centered resources to help you grow spiritually, visit us online at www.chipbrogdon.com.